This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today, in part one of our exploration of David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, we'll take a deep dive into the life of David Koresh, their most infamous leader, whose fate was sealed in a raging fire in Waco, Texas. In part two, we'll focus on Koresh's Branch Davidian followers. We'll delve into Koresh's techniques for recruiting them, their beliefs, and the tragedy that befell them at Waco. Vanessa is going to lead the way on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Greg. And just a reminder, if you're as fascinated by cults as we are, you can listen to previous episodes of Cults on your favorite podcast directory. Don't forget to subscribe while you're there because new episodes come out every Tuesday. And if you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen. It helps people like you find us. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. I'm saying that when I get through writing these and they're given to my attorney, mm-hmm. and my attorney hands them over, what's the two uh, theologians' name? Uh, Philip Arnold. Philip Arnold Tabor. and Jim Tabor. Mm-hmm. If you've shown that they have a sincere interest in these things, mm-hmm. you see, then I can spend all my time in jail and people can go ahead and ask me all the stupid questions. Because they they're not going to ask me about the seals. They're going to say, uh, uh do you molest young ladies? Uh, have you eaten babies? Uh, do you sacrifice people? Uh, do you make automatic weapons? Uh, do you have bars? That's what they're going to be interested in. Sensationally. Okay, so that's, your, that's why you need to get it done before you leave there, then. That's why okay. I'm going to complete it. Because, you see, you know as well as I do that people in this world, they want something dramatic and sensational. They don't want to have to sit. No one's going to sit there and let me sit there in front of a camera and read Psalms 40 to them to prove the first seal. These are among the last recorded words of David Koresh, spoken to an FBI negotiator just days before fire consumed the compound, where he and his followers lived. The words were spoken in a moment when some still had hope that the standoff in Waco, Texas, could find a peaceful resolution. But that was not to be. Koresh reached international notoriety during the disastrously fatal ATF raid and subsequent 51-day standoff with the FBI. It was the most fatal confrontation with the FBI in U.S. history and resulted in the deaths of four federal agents and over 70 Branch Davidians, including Koresh and 25 children, half of them his own. 
In the spring of 1993, just prior to the raid, 130 students of Koresh lived at the group's site outside Waco. It was a multiracial and multi-ethnic group. 45 members were black, and the cult included citizens of the US, UK, Australia, and Canada. Popularly, the group is known as the Branch Davidians, but by 1993, they called themselves Students of the Seven Seals. We'll go into more detail about their beliefs later on, but at the most basic level, they were an eschatological group. Meaning they believed the apocalypse was near, that the world as we know it was close to the biblical end of days described in the book of Revelation. Sinners would be severely punished and God's true believers given eternal life. Koresh and his students believed he was anointed by God to interpret the biblical seven seals found in the book of Revelation. And by opening the seals, Koresh would usher in the apocalypse. Now leaderless after Koresh's death, there's not much of a group left. But the late David Koresh still has a few ardent followers scattered around the world. The clash in Waco between the students of the seven seals and the U.S. government has sparked fiery debate. Some call it a siege, others a massacre. I think we can all agree that it was a tragedy. Who was David Koresh? the man who prized his religious ideology and vision of the end times more than he did his own life and the lives of his followers and children. Koresh was born on August 17, 1959 in Houston, Texas, and given the name Vernon Wayne Howell. His birth parents were 15-year-old Bonnie Sue Clark and 19-year-old Bobby Wayne Howell. Vernon never met his father because Bobby fell in love with another young lady and took off two months before his son was born. Not a great way to start life. Abandoned by his father, Vernon was left in the sole care of his 15-year-old mom. Things for Vernon didn't get better from there, Vanessa. His mom stuck around for the first four years, but then skipped town, leaving him in the care of her own mother, Erlene Clark. So Vernon lost both of his parents before he'd even started school, which, as we'll see, presented its own challenges. And for better or worse, Vernon's mom came back a few years later when he was seven years old. She was now married to Roy Halderman, who by all accounts was a violent alcoholic. Sounds more like for worse to me. What impact could those tumultuous first years have had on young Vernon? Well, Greg, research shows that abandonment and neglect have an enormously negative impact on children. This kind of early childhood trauma creates lasting physical changes in the brain. Children who suffer early losses without proper support are much more prone to psychological disorders later in life. But his mom did come back. Right, and in the best of worlds, that could have been a net positive. But since she came back with an abusive husband, Roy, the turbulence in young Vernon's life was far from over. Obviously, though, not everyone who suffers early childhood trauma becomes a cult leader. Exactly. As we learn a little more about Vernon, I think we'll begin to see some of the other factors that influenced him to transform into the infamous David Koresh. We know that Vernon struggled in school. He was diagnosed as dyslexic and pulled from regular classes for special schooling. Could his difficulty in school have had anything to do with his troubled early years? It's possible. The abandonment and emotional neglect he experienced likely had a substantial negative impact on his development and self-esteem. When you add his dyslexia and the fact that he was separated from his peers into the mix, that feeling of being less than or even worthless must have increased. And we know Vernon was teased and bullied in school. It's been reported that the kids called him Mr. Retardo. And he also alleged that his cousins tried to rape him when he was eight years old. 
During the Waco tragedy, between talking about the Bible and bragging about his athletic prowess as a youngster, Koresh told FBI negotiators he had a lonely childhood. And it's pretty obvious why he felt that way. He suffered a lot of pain and rejection. Some people respond to rejection by developing an enormous need to be extremely special to others. It seems like a good time to begin talking about the role that religion played for young Vernon. After he was returned to his mother's custody and moved to her new home in Dallas, Vernon joined her church, the Seventh-day Adventists. The Seventh-day Adventists' church sprang from the Millerites, known for the Great Disappointment. Way back in the 1800s, William Miller, farmer and leader of the Millerites, predicted the end of the world based on mathematics he deduced from the biblical book of Daniel. Miller had a substantial following of over 100,000 people at the Millerites' peak. He predicted a number of dates for the end of the world. Unfortunately for Miller, each of those days came and went. Finally, Miller predicted the world would end on October 22, 1844. As the sun set on the day of Miller's predicted apocalypse, his followers dressed in white robes and spent the night on rooftops and in trees waiting for the end. But when the sun rose in the morning and nothing substantial had changed, they descended, very disappointed. 30 of Miller's followers ended up in an insane asylum. The Millerites transformed into Seventh-day Adventists, led by prophetess Ellen G. White. The Seventh-day Adventists have 28 fundamental beliefs. Most of them are similar to those of other evangelical Protestant denominations. Three beliefs most set them apart from other denominations. One is the strict observance of the Sabbath, which they believe is on Saturday. The next is the gift of prophecy, as manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. She wrote some 25 million words that translate and explore her approximately 2,000 prophetic dreams, and those texts are considered divine teachings. And finally, there's the sanctuary doctrine. This belief is that after Christ sat at the right hand of God and interceded on some people's behalf by offering forgiveness, in 1844, the year of the Great Disappointment, Christ then went to a second heavenly sanctuary in heaven where he is evaluating the lives of those who had been forgiven to see if they are worthy of eternal life. After this, Christ will return to earth and usher in the apocalypse. That's what they're waiting for to this day. They don't have a set date they think this will happen, like Miller did, but they do think it will happen soon. Vernon was really drawn to the darker material in the Book of Revelation, a primary focus in Seventh-day Adventism. Since he had difficulty reading, Vernon memorized long tracts of the Bible. He'd actually preach to the other kids at school. Well, that probably didn't help him fit in. As a kid, when Vernon wasn't in school, he spent endless hours studying the Bible and praying. It's possible that if he'd put some of that fervor into his schoolwork, he would have made it past the ninth grade. It was during his childhood that Vernon began to display possible signs of neurological or psychological problems along with his religious fervor. During negotiations with the FBI on March 4, 1993, Koresh said, Quote, See, people have, they say God talks to them. Well, I had that problem too, you know, but my problem began as a child, you know, as a, as a, as a little child, end quote. He went on to describe another experience he had around 1970 at the age of 12. Quote, One night again, I was, I was confronted, praying towards, you know, the northern part of our universe. And there was a very beautiful, soft, it's, a, it's like explosion in the universe and the star. And this is just part of my growing up. I told my mom about it, and she says, she says, well, 
She says, go to sleep and it'll go away, end quote. These two childhood experiences may have been ecstatic hallucinations, which can be caused by temporal lobe seizures. Renowned neurologist Oliver Sacks described ecstatic hallucinations as, quote, A sudden sense of bliss or rapture, and feeling that one has been transported to heaven. There is nearly always some mystical or religious or sexual bent to ecstatic hallucinations, end quote. It's only soft evidence, but many psychologists, including Sachs, have written about the role of ecstatic seizures in religion, from the biblical Paul to Joan of Arc to early Seventh-day Adventist Ellen G. White. It is widely believed that some religious figures' visions could have been caused by temporal lobe epilepsy. Please note I'm not trying to discredit anyone's religious experiences or compare Vernon to anyone in the Bible, just bringing up what has been theorized. So maybe that was the case for Vernon, too. It's certainly possible. Let's pick up with Vernon after high school, which he dropped out of during ninth grade in the early 1970s. He kicked around doing odd jobs and fixing things. He also tried to find guys to play music with because he'd gotten into playing the guitar. He's sitting there, wondering so lonely, wondering why it has to rain alone, so sunny. There wasn't much then that was cooler than rock and roll. He was a skilled guitarist, and playing in small bands gave him some of the attention he craved. Getting a taste of that admiration and attention through music must have been incredibly intoxicating for a guy who'd spent his whole life being neglected and bullied. That's really a good point. When Vernon was 18 and still living in Texas, he had his first sexual experiences with Linda, a teenager he'd later referred to as jailbait. He described her as beautiful, and he told FBI negotiators that she seemed older than her age. Because of his religious beliefs, Vernon was freaked out by what had happened between them sexually. He took off. Linda eventually tracked him down. She called him up and told him she'd gotten pregnant. In a panic, Vernon claimed he was sterile, an excuse he'd heard in a movie once, but he had no paternal responsibilities. She'd already had an abortion. Oddly, they got together romantically. Vernon lived with Linda at her father's house. They continued to have sex, but didn't use condoms for religious reasons. That's a great example of how Vernon picked and chose what parts of the Bible he wanted to follow. He decided sex outside of marriage was okay, but birth control wasn't. We'll see that play out over and over again as his life goes on. Not surprisingly, Linda got pregnant again, and her dad kicked Vernon out. He was devastated. Vernon couldn't understand why it was okay with Linda's father for him to share a bed with her. But in 1979, when she got pregnant, he got kicked out. Linda had the baby, but her father made sure Vernon wasn't in the child's life. Vanessa, can you talk a little bit about what impact that experience might have had on Vernon? For a young man like Vernon, finding himself paired with a beautiful young woman would have felt like a dream come true. To have her and the hope of their family together all ripped away... That would be difficult for anyone, but Vernon's fragile self-esteem could have been devastated by that kind of blow. 20-year-old Vernon responded by diving even deeper into religion. He was living in his car. He prayed all the time and talked to every preacher in town whose ear he could bend. He discovered something in the Bible about the feminine Holy Spirit, and that really caught his attention. He brought the idea to church. His mom, Bonnie, recalled, quote, he had made a diagram of the big-breasted woman that is talked about in Revelation and in Genesis. It didn't go over very well. End quote. People didn't like Vernon pushing against their religion's ideas. 
To make matters worse, he took a romantic interest in the pastor's daughter. Vernon prayed to God about his attraction to the young woman. Afterwards, he told the pastor that when he opened his eyes from prayer, he'd found his Bible open to Isaiah 34:16, which is, quote, "None of these will be missing, not one will lack her mate." End quote. Vernon took it completely out of context and read it as a message from God that he should be with the young woman. The pastor was not impressed. Vernon persisted in pursuing the young woman and was promptly ousted from the congregation. This is the first, but not the last time, that Vernon would claim that a message from God told him he was supposed to be with a particular woman. Though it didn't work this time, consciously or unconsciously, he may have identified the potential for using the Bible for manipulation. When someone's looking for signs, they can be found almost anywhere. Some people might have given up on religion after all this heartache, but Vernon was all in. Seventh-day Adventism and its orientation toward the end of the world offered him the sense of direction and purpose he wasn't getting elsewhere. But there was his other interest, music. And there was still this part of him that wanted to be a rock star. After getting kicked out of the church around 1980, the 21-year-old Vernon moved to L.A. in pursuit of a music career. He even recorded a few songs. It's something that some people use as evidence that he resembles another cult leader we've talked about. You must mean Charles Manson. Exactly. But in truth, the similarities between these two men are pretty surface. While Manson was a psychopath and white supremacist who wanted to start a race war, Koresh was, as far as we know, a true believer in his own religion. Vernon loved the attention he got as a musician and saw the music's potential for spreading a Christian message. But a lot of the rock and roll crowd was more interested in drinking and drugs than learning about the Bible. Though Vernon failed to launch a career when he was in Hollywood, music was a powerful way to connect with his peers and eventually recruit followers. After failing to find success in L.A., Vernon returned to Texas. He was still captivated by the book of Revelation and felt strongly that the end of the world was near. Everything in his life felt heightened to him, and his long-standing belief that the end of the world was close, which was fostered by Seventh-day Adventism, made every trial and tribulation he faced have even greater meaning. It was all part of a grander scheme. But how did Vernon Howell make the transition from a hapless, Bible-focused outsider to David Koresh, leader of the Branch Davidians? Well, apocalyptic orientations were common in the run-up to the end of the first millennium. There could be no more seemingly powerful date than the one that marked the passage of 1,000 years after Christ. The coming turn of the century was ripe territory for doomsday imaginings. And Vernon knew from the book of Revelation that if the end was near, there must be someone on earth with God's message, a prophet. Vernon's mother told him she'd heard of just such a woman near Waco, Texas. In 1981, 22-year-old Vernon set out for the Branch Davidian compound, Mount Carmel, 10 miles outside of Waco, Texas. The Branch Davidians were literally a branch from the larger tree of Seventh-day Adventism. In 1929, a group broke off from the Seventh-day Adventists and became the Davidian Seventh-day Adventists. They believed that descendants of the biblical King David would return to rule over Palestine. They established the compound at Mount Carmel in 1935. In the 1960s, the Davidian Seventh-day Adventists splintered again. The new heirs to Mount Carmel called themselves the Branch Davidians, having branched from their previous group. The Branch Davidians were initially led by George Rodin. They believed the apocalypse was imminent. 
that the biblical events that described the run-up to the end of the world were already happening. They lived with a level of excitement and fear about the possibility of eternal life. They were an evangelical denomination and tried to build their congregation in order to save souls. When George Roden was ailing, his widow Lois Roden took over, declaring she's had a vision, a prophecy about the feminine Holy Spirit. She was in power when Vernon found the Branch Davidians. On his first visit in 1981 to Mount Carmel, Vernon heard 61-year-old Lois Roden preach. Her message about the feminine Holy Spirit resonated with his own ideas. He was taken with her and her teachings and quickly became her right-hand man. He traveled with her to recruit followers. Some people thought that they were married, and it is widely believed that they were sleeping together. Vernon believed the Holy Spirit would shine upon them, and he would make Lois pregnant with the Chosen One. And there's ample biblical precedent for children being born of older parents. For example, John the Baptist's father was 99, and his mother 88 when he was born. And Vernon, believing he would father the Chosen One with a woman in her 60s, certainly resonates with the idea that he might have been a pathological narcissist. Lois professed to be the incarnation of the feminine Holy Spirit, the maternal counterpart to God the Father. It's not a far stretch to say that Vernon craved a reliable, loving mother figure and was all too happy to find that safety and comfort with Lois. Though their age difference was significant, it didn't trouble the Branch Davidians. That is, except for Lois's son, George Roden. George was known to be unstable, and having watched his mother succeed his father, he assumed he'd be next in line for leadership of the group. But Vernon had Lois's attention, and the attention of many of her followers, which put him and George at odds. And George eventually challenged Vernon to an extremely strange duel. Could one of these men raise someone from the dead? Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to cults. In 1983, Lois Roden allowed Vernon Wayne Howell to begin preaching to the group. It was a skill he started honing way back when he was a youngster in school, and he'd gotten really good at it. Vernon's tremendous capacity to speak extemporaneously from and about the Bible deeply impressed other Branch Davidians. As historian Molly McGarry points out, other Branch Davidians knew Vernon only had a ninth grade education. They saw this uneducated man's ability to recite from and speak about the Bible for hours on end as a sign that he was truly moved by the Holy Spirit to speak. As Vernon gained their attention, he began working to wrest power away from Lois. He turned away from the idea of the feminine Holy Spirit. He went so far as to burn down the group's publishing building in 1983, so Lois's message could no longer be published and spread. In 1984, Vernon effectively abandoned his relationship with Lois. He'd used her to gain a following within the group, and like any skilled pathological narcissist, he figured out when he could discard her with minimal consequence to move forward with his ever-expanding personal goals. And his split from Lois sparked even greater animosity in her son George. But all he could do was stew on it. 
Vernon had likely tested his power within the group in small ways, taking bigger steps when he felt he could get away with it. It's textbook narcissistic behavior. Cult leader 101. Mm -hmm. Vernon's next move revealed just how much power he'd accumulated within the community. It was the turning point when Vernon departed from the agreed-upon rules of our culture. The moment when anyone not groomed and indoctrinated into his mindset would have walked away. Vernon Howell, then a 24-year-old man, announced that God had told him to marry 14-year-old Rachel Jones. 14 is below the legal age to marry in Texas without parental consent. But Rachel, along with her parents and younger sister, were strongly aligned with Vernon. Like many of Lois's followers who joined him, they were of the patriarchal mindset that Vernon had come to espouse. Though Vernon was less invested in male power than he was in his power. Her parents believed in Vernon and his message. He knew just how to deliver the news, expressing the right amount of his own reservations, but also leaning on his desire to follow the message of the Lord. Rachel's parents agreed to the marriage. Her father dutifully went to the Waco courthouse. He signed on the dotted line so his 14-year-old daughter could marry Vernon. It's hard for outsiders to understand why 14-year-old Rachel's parents would let her marry a 24-year-old man. But as I said, Vernon groomed them for this. He'd built their trust, and they believed in something bigger than common law and even their own moral compass. They believed in Vernon Howell. And it was only the beginning of Vernon's predatory hunt for his followers' young girls. Vanessa, can you talk about why Vernon might have wanted to marry a girl so young? Everything Vernon did was about power. Though there may have been a maternal element to his relationship with Lois, ultimately it was about accessing her power. And in preying on children like Rachel, he assured he would retain all the power in the relationship and go unchallenged, as he might by an equal. Well, that makes sense. In 1985, not long after he'd married Rachel, the animosity between Vernon and George came to a head. George staked his claim on the Mount Carmel compound and gave Vernon and his followers the boot. Vernon and a couple dozen others, including his wife Rachel and her family, set up camp in Palestine, Texas, less than 100 miles away. Mount Carmel was no resort, but the conditions on the Palestine land were even more primitive. Most people lived in plywood boxes. Winters don't get very cold in Palestine, but average summer temps are up in the 90s. That can't have been pleasant without any air conditioning. Not to mention the fact that they'd spent hours under the hot sun listening to Vernon's Bible teachings. To add to the group's outsider status, it wasn't long before Vernon took two more spiritual wives, becoming a polygamist. In 1986, he married Karen Doyle, age 14, and Michelle Jones, age 12. His followers had already stretched their faith to make room for his marriage to Rachel. So, when he added two more minors as wives to what he would soon call the House of David, people gritted their teeth and went along with it. The move sets a clear pattern of a very disturbing picture. Technically, what Vernon was engaged in wasn't pedophilia, which is clinically defined as an attraction to prepubescent children. Vernon's stated goal for having multiple wives was for these girls to bear his children. So they had to have started puberty. But what he was demonstrating was certainly hebophilia, which is sexual attraction to minors in the early onset of puberty, and or ephebophilia, the sexual attraction to minors in later puberty stages. However you slice it, it was sexual abuse. And let's remember that in 1986, Vernon turned 27. He was twice the children's age. 
Whatever you call it, it was a gross misstep and abuse of power that caused long-term damage to his victims. The other important event of 1986 was the death of Lois Roden. This left her son George at the helm of Mount Carmel. On his own, he was a mess, and his leadership went into steep decline with followers flocking to Vernon. Meanwhile, Vernon continued to recruit even more followers, traveling frequently to California, Canada, England, Australia, and Israel. He'd search for seekers in places where young people congregated, like religious schools, bars, clubs, and pool halls. He'd developed an easy way about him that drew people in. His love of music was one way he connected to young people, and many of his new recruits were musicians themselves. Vernon spoke in plain metaphors that they could understand. He always knew just what someone needed to hear to make a connection. That's a skill that often comes naturally to people with narcissistic personality disorder. A number of individuals and families followed the charismatic leader back to Texas. By 1987, the majority of Branch Davidians followed Vernon. They knew the community at Mount Carmel had dwindled and hoped they could eventually go home there. In 1987, at age 28, Vernon married three more young women, Robin Buns, 17, Nicole Gent, 16, and Dana Okimoto, 20. He was up to at least six wives. It might sound like his wives were trending a little older, but later he allegedly married girls as young as 11. His predilection for underage girls made a number of his followers uncomfortable. Some of them left, but most stayed. Drummer David Thibodeau, a former follower who Vernon recruited on one of his trips to Los Angeles, said he always felt uncomfortable about this aspect of the leader's behavior. Thibodeau points out in his book that it was clear that Vernon not only liked young girls, but somehow God only told him to marry the pretty ones. When asked, Vernon said God must want him to have beautiful children, and he was determined to procreate so he and his offspring could all rule together after the non-believers were killed at the end of the world. Meanwhile, George was stewing out at Mount Carmel, where the group had dwindled to almost nothing. He got it in his head that he would expose Vernon as a fraud and show everyone that George was the rightful leader of the Branch Davidians. In 1987, he went to the community graveyard and dug up Anna Hughes, an 84-year-old who died 20 years prior. George put her casket in the compound chapel, called up Vernon, and challenged him to see which man could bring Hughes back to life. Whatever flaws Vernon had, and even he said there were many, he had his feet on the ground enough to see an opportunity to take George out. Vernon went to the local authorities and reported George for abuse of a corpse. But private land is practically sacred in Texas. The cops didn't want to march onto Mount Carmel land on the word of George's rival, and they refused to investigate without proof. On November 3, 1987, Vernon and seven of his followers armed themselves and tried to sneak onto the property to get a picture of the casket to show police. And they were not messing around. They brought five semi-automatic assault rifles, two rifles, two 12-gauge shotguns, and nearly 400 rounds of ammunition. A gun battle ensued. George was armed with an Uzi submachine gun, but was wounded by David's followers and fled. Vernon and his followers were all brought up on state charges of attempted murder. His followers were tried in Waco court. After the two-week trial, they were all acquitted. 
Vernon's case ended in a mistrial. Vernon's fourth wife, 17-year-old Robin Bunds, later said that seeing him cry at that trial touched her heart. It drew her closer to him, the only man she'd ever seen cry. It's easy as an outsider to see how manipulative he was being, but Vernon's believers just saw his emotional behavior in court as evidence of his humanity. A few months later, George was arrested on an unrelated attempted murder charge. With no one at the helm of Mount Carmel, the compound's finances went into disarray. By 1988, Vernon had gotten the money together to pay back taxes on the land. He officially took over. Meanwhile, George's life took a steep downward turn. He managed to stay out of jail for a while. But two years later, in 1989, he came to believe that his roommate had been sent by his old rival, Vernon, to kill him. George shot and killed the man. He was tried and found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was locked up in Big Spring State Hospital. Ironically, George outlived his rival by a number of years, but he never regained his sanity. He was found on the grounds of Big Springs, dead of a heart attack, after his last attempted escape in 1998. He was 60 years old. Around the time Vernon officially reclaimed Mount Carmel, he legally changed his name to David Koresh. So we'll be using his new name going forward. Koresh's name change was inspired by the Branch Davidian sect's name, rather than the other way around. His first name was taken from King David, and Koresh is the Hebrew version of another anointed one, the Persian King Cyrus. It's worthwhile to note that one king wasn't enough for him. He drew from the names of two. Koresh had a pivotal and very troubling revelation in 1989. He called it the New Light, and it irrevocably changed the fabric of the Branch Davidian community. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now let's continue our story. On August 5th, 1989, David Koresh was staying at the group's house in Pomona, California, which technically belonged to the Bunz family. He delivered the new light message as if it had just come to him, but it seemed contrived to Mark Bro, an Australian follower who was there with his wife, Elizabeth. Koresh cocked his head as if hearing a message from God in that very moment. He then annulled the marriages of all of his followers. Koresh said he was entitled to at least 140 wives and said the women of the group were all his to choose from as needed, that he had to have many children in preparation for their rule in paradise. Bro wasn't the only person who wasn't buying this. Even back at Mount Carmel, people felt like Koresh was building up to a move like this, so much so that when they heard Koresh had announced something big, they were able to guess what it was. Bro says that after the announcement, Koresh put an arm around him and said, quote, So Mark, how's it feel now that I'm stuck with Elizabeth? End quote. Bro was already fed up with Koresh, and this was the final straw for him. He wanted out. The new edict created a lot of tension. Koresh chastised men who were reluctant to give up their wives. He separated men and women so that they would only come together during Bible study under his watchful eye. To prove his point, he once told a woman to lift her skirt and show the men her underwear. He asked the men if they felt aroused. They all raised their hands. Koresh said that inevitably men would want to have sex with women, and that's why they had to be kept apart. Separating couples had another benefit. It isolated people. Husbands and wives couldn't talk alone late at night. They couldn't express doubts and reservations about Koresh or his teachings. Another manipulation. What compelled his followers to stay after something like this? 
Well, in large part, it had to do with the sunk cost fallacy. It's when people make a decision based on what they've already invested in something rather than what it offers them going forward. It's the inability to cut one's losses. Koresh's followers had already given up so much in terms of their personal relationships, freedom, and money. If they left now, it would have all been a waste. It's similar to the dynamic in other kinds of abusive relationships, but Koresh had something especially powerful on his side, the coming apocalypse and threat of eternal damnation. After all, his followers really did believe the end of the world was coming. What was a little sacrifice now for the blessing of eternal life? That's exactly the emotional calculation people were making. Koresh's fourth wife, Robin Buns, who already had a child with him, was at the Pomona house when he revealed new light. In 1990, after she'd left the group, she said that in the early days she was entranced by the idea that one of Koresh's wives would give birth to the Messiah. Buns told a reporter, quote, It was like a beauty contest, all of us battling against each other to be this woman that God thinks is the greatest. It was like a fairy tale, end quote. Buns had never liked sharing Koresh with other women, and between having her son and doing her own growing up, she realized the whole thing was ridiculous. When Koresh started sleeping with Bun's own mother, it was the final straw. Robin Bun's left. Koresh kidnapped their son and took him back to the Waco compound. Bun's had to fight Koresh in court to get her son back. Luckily, she won. Even after leaving the cult, Bun's felt Koresh hadn't always been so bad. She said, quote, He has totally changed. He was really nice. He was humble. He was very well-mannered. Over the years, though, he's lost a lot of those qualities. He's become this obnoxious, foul-mouthed, pushy person because of the power he has over these people, end quote. That also seems consistent with the narcissistic personality disorder. Definitely. Koresh lured people in by being a kinder, gentler person. Then, as he changed and revealed his true self, he blamed others for his bad behavior. If he treated a follower poorly, it was her fault. Bun's mother followed her daughter and left Koresh after a few months, but her father stayed behind in the cult. Under New Light, Koresh was the only man in the group who was allowed to have sex. All the women, effectively, became his property. Whoever God allegedly told him he should marry in order to procreate, he would. Koresh claimed he was supposed to have 24 children, slated to be the group of 24 elders cited in the book of Revelation, who would rule a kingdom in Israel in the last days of the world. And it was supposed to be an honor to have the opportunity to give Koresh a child. The New York Times reported that, quote, girls as young as 11 were given a plastic star of David, signifying that they had the light and were ready to have sex with the cult leader, end quote. Celibacy was a huge ask to make of the men in his community, but it was an even bigger ask of the women and girls who had to have sex with Koresh. They'd all been groomed to obey him, which was incredibly manipulative. But with the children, it was even more than manipulation. It was statutory rape. No one was happy about New Light at first, and Koresh lost some followers after his announcement. But he found a clever way to frame the new rule. He explained that along with creating the children who would become the 24 elders, he was also saving his followers from sinning by having sex. He would take on that burden for them. While he didn't exclusively take underage girls for wives, Koresh's taste for them didn't go unnoticed. His ardent followers believed that as troubling as this behavior of his was, he had to obey the mandates of God, 
And Koresh pretended he was troubled by the age difference between he and many of his wives as well, but had to do as God said, again, framing it as a sacrifice. In 1992, one father who wasn't a cult member tried to rescue his daughter from Koresh. 11-year-old Kiri Jewell testified in a court custody hearing that Koresh had sexually abused her in a Waco hotel room when she was only 10 years old. Luckily, her father was able to save her from further abuse. Koresh made allowances for himself in other areas, too. He could drink beer and had air conditioning in his room. He ate meat, while the rest of the group was vegetarian. Koresh was serious and sometimes angry when he was teaching, but afterward he's said to have let that authority slide right off. Thibodeau and others have said that Koresh was almost just like one of the guys. They'd go to town, kick around a bar, talking to people, seeing if they could hook anyone's interest in the teachings. There were folks in town that hated Koresh, but he had an easy way about him that was disarming. Unlike a lot of cult leaders who deviate from traditional religious texts, Koresh was 100% focused on interpreting the Bible. His visions and prophecies served to unlock passages, or at least that's how he explained things. He ignored the parts of the Bible that conflicted with his views. There's a condition related to temporal lobe seizures that Koresh could have been suffering from called Geshwind syndrome. The traits of Geshwind syndrome are excessive talking, compulsive writing, being either hypo or hypersexual, more commonly hyposexual, hyper-religiosity or morality, and an enhanced mental life in general. And these symptoms slowly increase over time. David certainly checks a lot of those boxes. He was known to speak for as many as 19 hours at a stretch, had at one time been worried about his excessive masturbation, and was eventually having sex with scores of women who he called wives. He was also obsessed with religion and led a life consumed by his perceptions and emotions. Oliver Sacks wrote, quote, Such epileptic hallucinations bear a considerable resemblance to the command hallucinations of psychosis. Even though the epileptic patient may have no psychiatric history, it takes a strong and skeptical person to resist such hallucinations and to refuse them either credence or obedience, especially if they have a revelatory or epiphanic quality and seem to point to a special and perhaps exalted destiny." End quote. David seems like the last person who would be skeptical about the origin of his visions. I agree, Greg. The abuse and neglect he suffered as a child created that low self-esteem caused strong need to be special, which brings up the possibility that he had a co-occurring personality disorder. A number of experts have suggested he may have had narcissistic personality disorder. As we've seen in previous episodes, narcissists commonly believe they're destined for greatness. If Koresh suffered from clinical narcissism, ecstatic hallucinations would have greatly exacerbated his sense of being extremely special, chosen for some divine role. Additionally, narcissists are expert manipulators. David may have had some actual hallucinations, but he also may have realized that he could fabricate messages from God to suit his needs. And we'll see how that plays out in his relationships with women. And with these kinds of diagnoses, even when experts can observe a person directly, they sometimes disagree about the root cause. Absolutely. We'll never know exactly what was going on inside the mind of David Koresh, but it can be helpful as we process what happened at Waco to try and understand the factors that drove the real people involved, particularly Koresh himself, to understand how one high school dropout came to mean so much to a group of people that they died for him. 
Koresh was always looking for signs of the coming apocalypse. Because let's remember that for end-time believers, that's not something to be avoided. It's something to be welcomed. He became familiar with the idea of the New World Order, which is being kicked around by militia and fundamentalist Christian groups in the late 1980s and early 1990s. The New World Order is essentially the idea that a global elite wants to dissolve nation-states and take over the world. The New World Order would subject everyone to authoritarian rule, and there was a distinctly anti-Semitic bent to the term. Koresh originally thought he and the other branch Davidians were supposed to go to Israel to fight for control of Israel against the United Nations. But that all changed in 1991, when the U.S. went to war in the Gulf. Koresh came to believe that the U.S. was what is referred to in Revelation as Babylon. He came to believe his big showdown would be at home in the U.S., in Texas. That's when the Branch Davidians began to prepare for something big. They stockpiled supplies including food, weapons, ammunition, and propane. Things were getting serious. In the next two years, Koresh's prophecies about the annihilation of their group escalated and eventually became a self-fulfilling prophecy. In the meantime, they used their gun business to buy and modify weapons in quantity. They turned many around for sale at gun shows, but kept a lot for themselves. Texas was a pro-gun state. For the most part, what the Branch Davidians were doing was legal. In the 1980s and beyond, there was a heightened anti-government sense among many of the gun show crowd. These folks, like the Branch Davidians, thought the government was interfering too much in people's lives. They wanted to live and raise their children how they wanted, without the government stepping in, among other things. The value systems between militia folks and religious folks weren't the same, but the beef with Uncle Sam was. Koresh adopted the view that the government was trying to take away people's guns. He declared that his followers needed to be armed, to protect themselves from authoritarian rule. In the summer of 1992, a UPS driver had a damaged package to deliver to Mount Carmel. Inside, he saw firearms and empty grenade casings. He reported it to the authorities. There were already allegations of child abuse at Mount Carmel, both physical and sexual. But the state had been unable to substantiate any of the charges. And as vocal as Koresh was with his followers, he knew the outside world wouldn't accept him having sex with underage girls. So he didn't talk about it to outsiders, and neither did anyone else in the Branch Davidians. The pressure mounted. In January of 1993, the ATF sent undercover agents to live next door to Mount Carmel and scope out the situation. Thibodeau later claimed that Koresh knew their new neighbors were feds from the start. But he welcomed them at Bible study. Koresh's attitude was that maybe these guys came around because of their job, but his message might reach them. But the government's new knowledge of the Branch Davidians' growing arsenal marked the beginning of the end for Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Koresh already envisioned going out in a blaze of glory. Now it was only a question of when and how that would happen. See, what you have is you have a sociopath in, in, at the top of this group, and, and they're looking at him for all the answers. They're willing to die for him. And if he's putting in terms, the context of it is that, look, that God said that this is it. This is Armageddon, you know. Um, so we want to die the way that God wants us to die. And so he can do just about anything with them that he wants at this point. Next week, we'll discuss the events leading up to the fatal 1993 ATF raid of the Mount Carmel compound and subsequent standoff between the Branch Davidians and the FBI. We'll see how the FBI handled the situation, including some places where they went wrong. 
And we'll explore why so many of Koresh's followers stayed with him at the compound and eventually lost their lives in the most fatal standoff the FBI has seen to this day. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Tuesday as we continue to unpack David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by M.W. Wilson and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.